So grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23. That is page 297 of your pew Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, take that Bible home with you. And we will also get you a nicer Bible if you want a nicer Bible or a different translation. The main thing is I have a copy of God's Word. And with that, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's Holy Word. We've been working our way through the story of David, and we find ourselves uh, in his final uh, days as he is approaching death. 2 Samuel chapter 23, we'll start in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like the rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause the prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all, all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Now, Father, we ask, as always, you would open our hearts, we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your kingdom and your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouths that we would speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves, to one another in love, and to a lost and dying world around us. We open our hands and our feet that we would take your word, inspired by your spirit, that points us to Christ and be transformed for your kingdom and your glory. Lord, this is a simple text but an important one. May we be changed and transformed because of your work. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. May you be seated. Amen. About every week or so, my parents and I, and sometimes the kids might go with me, we, we travel down to Georgetown to eat uh, dinners, like a late lunch, but that's a separate joke. We eat dinner with my uh, great uncle, who, who we just love. Uh, my great uncle is about 90 years old. He is the last of his generation. He is my father's father's brother. For those of you from Kentucky, that's, what is that? Anyway, so, so, so uh, we, we're quite, quite close to him. We love him. Again, he's the last of that generation. But I've also noticed, as I've learned over the years, that as you age, you become a little honest, Right? And here we were Friday eating at old Charlie's in Georgetown and mind our own business, whatever it is we were talking about. And all of a sudden is, is from my uh, uncle, Billy Don, that's my father, Billy Don, you need to go on a diet. You're getting a little fat. I thought it was hilarious. I just, just, just yes, right? You know, <laughs> you know, I just, just love that, right? Now, chances are, you and I would never say anything like that on purpose in front of someone. We would do it behind their backs and say it to our spouse the way Jesus told us to do it, right? But, but I, I've found that as we age, we, our filter becomes, uh, uh, it needs to be changed and we're not going to change it out, right? 
We, we just let things through we normally wouldn't let through. I, I love that. And I've noticed with myself, the older I get, the more like my father I, I, I become. And I know when my father hits 90, he's going to be telling me I need to go on a diet. And when I hit 90, I will certainly be telling my kids they need to go on it, whether they need it or not, right? Something happens to us as we age, isn't it? In fact, one of the things I've noticed is as we age, some of us, either we become cranky or we really become the source of real blessing in people's lives. You've met people like that, right? People who are just cranky. There's always something wrong going on. It's just, just cranky people. And then there are those who, who every time you meet them, your life gets a little better. They're encouraging, they're a blessing to you, they, 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 they are just, they're just everything that you need. And we've got people in our lives, particularly with the latter, that, that we really rely on and lean in on, who would never tell us with such bluntness that we need to lose weight. They would put it a different way, in a more gentle way that we would receive well. Can I tell you what the difference between one and the other is often? We become cranky when we keep our focus on the past. We think about what could have been, what we should have done, what might have been, what we could change, or how things aren't the way they used to be. Our focus is always on the past. But those who are a genuine blessing to those around them, the focus you'll find is often on the future. What we have here is David has done both. You may recall from last week we saw 2 Samuel 22 that Daniel was, or David rather, was reflecting on the past. You remember, its context was, remember that we're in a part of 2 Samuel where it's not chronologically together, it's thematically together. So last week, David wrote this psalm shortly after being uh, declared king and crowned king over Israel. And it's all about how good God has been to him. And look how awesome God is. He is finding uh, comfort and peace in his present because of what God had done in his past. But now we go to the other end of David's life, chronologically speaking, and we see David writing his final official words. And he's not looking back with regret. He's looking forward with hope. Let's start there with the man of this passage. The man, verses 1 and 2. You see it there in verse 1. We are told these are the last words of David. They need to know we're going to find out these are not literally the last words of David. These are the last official words penned by David on record. Again, we'll see David talking back and forth, particularly in, 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 in 1 Kings. But these are the last official words. This is similar to uh, maybe when a presidential term is ending and uh, he does the last final press conference, right? I remember watching that at uh, W's and, and President Obama's and, and, and Trump's and, 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 and Biden will have one eventually, right? So, so, so it, you know, we, we, these are the last, it's the last press conference. Or what I really find a, a neat little a comparison is uh, when, when we transition from one president to another, the, the outgoing president will write a handwritten note that is only for the incoming president. He will put it inside the, the desk there, and uh, the, the new president then will read it, and, and that's really their first act of business is, is to read that. And you can get online, you could read biographies, you could read some of those, those notes, but they're mostly private. That's, that's what this would be, right? The last official words of David. Now notice something here, at the, at the second part of verse one. It begins with the oracle of David, the son of Jesse. Did your Bible say oracle too? It's an interesting word. It just jumps off the page for me. Because we have found David first as a shepherd, 
who then becomes a sort of military leader. And then eventually he becomes king. And that's where we've seen him, at least in our study in the last two years of David. But here he describes himself as an oracle. What an interesting word. Prophets give oracles, don't they? You won't really see many other people uh, speak of giving oracles, but prophets. Here, David is describing himself as a type of prophet. And prophets, you may know, among other things, they anticipate the future. Here, then, David is announcing what is to come. He's speaking not as a king, but as a prophet. So again, David, in his previous psalm in chapter 22, he's looking in his past. Here, he is looking towards the future. So then what we see in verses 1 and 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 verse 2 is a sort of introduction to to the psalm. doesn't really say anything new, but he's setting up. And the main message here is that he is coming to speak as a prophet. Now, that idea of David being a prophet may be new to many of us. We don't think of David as a prophet, but the Bible describes him that way. For example, in um, uh, Peter's Pentecostal sermon, uh, he says, uh, Brothers, Uh, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, he both died and was buried in the tombs with us today, being therefore a prophet, he says. And we have many of the other prophecies of David uh, recorded for us in the New Testament taken from the Old Testament. So here we meet the man, the man David, who is not king in this this picture, but rather prophet. Let's then meet the monarch, verses 3 and 4. So we, we know we're going to hear a message from the Lord, David, as prophet. What is that message from the Lord? Well, in order to answer the what, let us first of all meet the who. Notice here in verse 3, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me. Now, let me give you some insight on Hebrew poetry. We don't have this in English. One of the ways the Hebrew poets write is they will have two lines that say essentially the same thing in two different ways. This is a good example of this. Notice he says the same thing. The God of Israel is the rock of Israel, right? He's just said the same thing. And and, and so this is what scholars call parallelism. However, I think it's deeper than that. Let's take this phrase, the God of Israel. This phrase separates the true God from the other so-called gods known around the ancient world. And the phrase is first used in Exodus chapter 5 by Moses to Pharaoh. So Moses says afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, right? Let my people go. Now you remember the context there. That comes off the heels of Moses encountering God in the burning bush. So having met God in his very essence, he then announces to Pharaoh, the God of Israel says to you to this day, let my people go. So the genesis of this phrase is the Exodus account. The other phrase that we see here is the rock of Israel. Now we saw how David last week loves the term the rock, right? Um, God is the rock, the shield, the fortress, the refuge, all that sort of stuff. But here it's more specific. It's not just the rock. He is the rock of Israel. Now, the genesis of this term is again in the Exodus story. In fact, let me show it to you. This is going to be important. Exodus 17. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock of Horeb. Remember, the, the people of Israel are thirsty. 
And, and uh, they're in the middle of the desert, which I would think would be a rough time to be thirsty. And so Moses, what I'm going to do, God says, look, I'm going to stand before you, rock up Horeb. You're going to strike the rock and water will come from it. Now, I want you to notice the language there. God says he will come down and stand before the rock. So when Moses strikes the rock, he is striking the rock whom God himself is standing in front of. Okay, that's an important detail. Because later, Paul will look back at this story and he'll say, our ancestors in the wilderness drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. You see what David is doing here. He begins with with the God of Israel, which points us back to the burning bush, where we see the angel of the Lord speaking to Moses, who I believe is the pre-incarnate Jesus. He then uses the language of the rock, which Paul sees as a typology of Christ being struck. And out of being struck comes living water. Right away, in order to understand what the message is, we first meet who gives the message. And what we find then is that David sees Christ and he points the reader to consider Christ. David's last words are prophetic, not about him, but about the ultimate ruler that is to come. Maybe you don't believe me. Let's, let's, let's look at the rest of the, 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 actually the prophecy begins the second part of verse three. He says there, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Now I'm reading from the English Standard Version and I think they get this one wrong. Mine says, when one rules justly. And that, that assumes that it's just some king to follow David. And to a certain extent, there is some truth to that. Many see this prophecy as being fulfilled in Solomon, and to a certain extent that is true, but it's not ultimately fulfilled in Solomon. Your translation may something, say something like, the one who rules justly. You can look at your Bible and see what it says. Notice the difference. The ESV will say, oh, when one, when one comes, he'll, he'll rule justly. But a better translation is, one will come and rule justly. He will rule in righteousness. He will rule with the fear of God. This is to say David is anticipating not a ruler of Israel, the ruler of Israel. In fact, we could say he expects the who to become the what here. The God of Israel, the rock of Israel, to be the one who will rule Israel justly. This is a prophecy from David He will rule in justice and righteousness. And this continues down in verse four. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Now notice he's described the who, right? And and what is the who gonna do? He's gonna come, he's gonna rule and reign over Israel. But what will his ruling be like to us? Here he uses poetic metaphors. He uses two, the sun and the rain, which are like the opposite, right? You know, usually you only get one or the other, okay? Notice what he says about the sun. His sun, he will, his coming be like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Um, many of you all have seen me out and about. I think I did this, uh, was it truck or treat? I, I wasn't wearing my glasses, wearing contacts. And, and one of the reasons I got contacts is I don't wear them often because my eyes are quite dry and contacts make them worse. But when I go running out in the morning on a sunny day, I have to wear sunglasses. 
For those of you who the Lord has blessed with good eyesight, I am jealous of you because I've never had good eyesight. I mean, I've told you all before, you all look so much better all of a sudden. (laughs) But wearing sunglasses over glasses is not a fashion statement you want to be making, okay? Especially whenever you're running. And, but I do love those early morning runs where, where it's just bright as bright as can be that you have to wear a hat and, and sunglasses. And that's the image that comes to mind here to where without some sort of blockage, without some sort of shade, you cannot fathom this. And he says that the coming of this ruler, the one who comes after me, it will be like a sunny day of light on a cloudless day. Well, that's, that's a good day. That's why. Sorry, ladies, spring is better than fall. I know fall is pretty, and you love watching the earth die. I get that. And with that comes pumpkin spice, donuts, and coffee, and and just judgment upon you. But spring is the best uh, um, season, and can't we agree? It's life. The sun comes out, right? The birds return. The other image he gives is that of rain. His coming will be like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Now, what image comes to mind here is that in the summertime, it's bright and sunny, and all of a sudden it starts raining. You know what the first thing crosses my mind on like those long, dreary, rainy summer days? I'm going to have to mow the yard sooner than I had wanted to, right? That's what I think, right? Think about it. With the sun means light. Rain means life. His coming, David tells us, will be light in this dark world. His coming will be light. Life to this dying cosmos. This is why I don't think Solomon fulfills this. Solomon isn't life. He brings a lot of death. He isn't life. He brings a lot of darkness to Israel. There is one. The one is coming who will rule and reign. The monarch that we are waiting for. Let's look thirdly and finally at the Messiah. I think this is a sort of obvious point, isn't it? David is looking forward to the coming of Messiah. This is verses 5 to 7. This future ruler is, of course, the coming Christ. Verse 5, notice that as David anticipates his imminent death, he looks forward to the reign of the Christ. For does not my house stand so with God? He has made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things secure. He will not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. Notice what he did there. What David is doing, he's saying, as I anticipate my coming death and as I look forward to what will become of Israel, as the true king is coming to rule and reign. Here's something that David reminds himself of. This God who is coming has made us a promise. Here he's referring to what we call the Davidic covenant. I'll give you it in brief in 2 Samuel 7 verse 16. God says to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is the singular hope of Israel to this day. That the kingdom of David will know no end. And this is why when the Babylonians came and they slayed the the, the, people, the king and all that, everyone's in a panic because what do you do with this promise? David is assuring the reader, God has made a promise to his people and that promise will be fulfilled. But its fulfillment will not be just in a line of succession. It will ultimately be fulfilled in one who will be the last and true and better David, 
Messiah will come. He will rule and reign and he will bring with him light and life, justice and righteousness. And the fear of God will be known around the world. However, you should note this, how the psalm ends. It ends with a bit of a bummer, right? Don't you wish it ended there? Jesus is coming. Let's go eat chicken, right? But it ends on a bit of a bummer note. And what he shows here is that though all, everything he has said thus far is true, not everyone will be on board. Verse six, the worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. They cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron, the shaft of spear, they are utterly consumed with fire. Notice there, the Messiah will come, but the Messiah will be rejected. But what will the Messiah do? He will bring judgment. So notice there, yes, and David anticipate the day when the Messiah will both plant and he will prune. When the Messiah will both restore and destroy. When the Messiah will both save and judge. Both are part of his work when he comes. This is clear language of judgment. A judgment that leads the salvation. People get ready, David is saying. Jesus is coming. So what do we do with this passage? Just practically speaking, what, what do we really do with this? And I know we, we've got to move forward. The first thing we need to state here is the hope of the future gives peace in the present. Let me give you some insight here. You could spend your days bemoaning the past and that will only make you miserable about the presence. I should have said this. I should have tried that. I should have led here. We should have gone there. We shouldn't have moved here. We shouldn't have done that. If you spend your time hiding in the past, your present will be miserable. But if your hope is anchored in Christ, who is Lord over the future, a Christ whom David anticipated, we now know has come and will come again. Your present will be just fine. Why worry about something you cannot control when there is the God of the cosmos already has it under control? <clears throat> David understands he has every reason to be a bit petrified about what is coming. His own son had rebelled against them and has died in battle. Uh, someone else has tried to secede from the union. Remember, we looked at those stories. And we'll find that after he dies, his other sons will try to take the throne from Solomon. David has every reason to be worried about his present. But he concludes with, the one is coming. And if the one is coming, I have nothing to worry about today. Because at the end of the day, that will be taken care of. And if he has the future in his hand, he has the present under control. So, too, we have nothing to fear about the present because we know who owns the future. Second thing, quickly, is the best of men are men at best. If you listen to Alistair Begg, you've heard that phrase. I'm stealing it from him. I am sure he is stealing it from some Scottish preacher somewhere else. Age has a way of giving us a better perspective about life. Notice here, David could have written this psalm and said, you know what? Solomon is a, he's a good lad. He's a smart kid. He'll be all right. The kingdom is fine. Rather what David, I think what he's doing here is he's saying, you know what? I see a lot of me in that boy. And that mean, that's probably not a compliment. David places his hope not in men 
Because men at their best are really still just men. The best of men are men at best. He sees in Solomon someone who could be a good leader, a good king, someone who's flawed just like him. David does not put his hope into mankind. He puts his hope in the Messiah. This is why we cannot limit the interpretation of the psalm just to Solomon. Perhaps there is nothing more fallacious for us as humans to trust in other humans to fix our problems, secure our hope, and guarantee our happiness. When you make that mistake, misery is in your future. Whether we trust in an economy, a political system, a political party, a specific politician, a cultural movement, a spouse, a leader, or even a celebrity these days. It is madness to think our hope lies in them. I'm afraid that many of us think that after Tuesday, all these problems are going to be fixed. Or you think after Tuesday, things are going to get worse. The problem is your hope is anchored in soft sand. The best of men are men at best. Chances are when we started this long journey with David, we all agreed David's the man. Then we started reading the story of David. We thought, yeah, that's the problem. He's a man. Notice here this psalm anticipates a true and better man, the God-man, who triumphs in every way that David failed. He overcomes all that we fail at and takes it upon himself because his shoulders are broad enough. The best of men are men at best. May we stop placing our hope and our trust, our love and our contentment and our peace and our contentment and our rest in men and women instead of anchor them securely in the rock of Israel, Christ risen from the dead. One last thing. You, you could probably guess this is coming by this point, right? Jesus is the true and better David. Let me lay this out as quickly as we can. Theologians like to describe the three offices of Christ. Can I add a fourth just for our purposes here? And it makes me sound really smart if I add to what the theologians do, okay? So I'm going to say four offices of Christ. You can name them for me, right? Shepherd, king, priest, prophets. Did you notice David fulfills all four? We met David as shepherd early on, didn't we? You remember our series we've looked at is, first of all, it was David the shepherd who would be king, and then now it's David the king who would be shepherd. The reason is because David is called to lead Israel like Moses in the wilderness as a shepherd. Moses never surrendered his, his vocation as a shepherd. Instead of shepherding sheep, he's shepherding stubborn people. But I'm glad we don't have to do that anymore. So too, David, when he rules and reigns, he is to rule as a shepherd to sheep. He is shepherd. He is king. That seems kind of obvious, isn't it? He is priest. And we don't have time to go on all that. It should be worth noting that he, he is prophesied by Hannah that a priest is coming to rule, a royal priest. He dresses as a priest. Remember when he was dancing in a, in a linen ephod, that's a priestly garment? That was a weird text. His wife didn't like it. He's doing so not just as a king, but also as priest. And then here we see David speaking as prophet. He is seen in the New Testament as prophet. The problem, however, is whether as shepherd, whether as king, whether as priest, or whether as prophet, David is flawed at best. The hope of this passage is not to look back and say, we once had a good leader. We once had things under control. Life once was good. But rather to say, there's a true and better prophet coming. There's a true and better priest coming. There's a true and better king coming. There's a true and better shepherd coming. And we see that in Christ. 
As shepherd, Christ lays his life down for the sheep and his sheep hear his voice and follow him. As priest, he makes intercession on our behalf and atones for our sins, procuring our forgiveness and cleansing. As king, he rules and reigns from an eternal throne whose kingdom will know no end and he rules with peace and justice. And as prophet, he is the very revelation of God. To know him is to know the God of Israel, the rock of Israel. This is why when you come to the New Testament, there's that phrase, the son of David, it's all over the place. Let me show you just a few examples from a single book. You say, preacher, I can't read that. That's sort of my point. You're familiar with the text. We've looked at them before. The very first verse of the New Testament wants you to know this is the genealogy of Jesus, son of David. You see what's happening here is more than genealogy. It is theology. It is Christology. Christ comes not as another David, but as a true and better David. Your hope does not lie in the past. Your hope does not lie in other people. Your hope lies in Christ. So then, as individuals, as families, as a church, let us march forward, for Christ has come. And Christ will come again. Let us sing with his praises. Martin Luther is said to have stated, and whether or not he did, I don't know. Historians debate it. He probably didn't. He was once asked that if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow, what would you do today? Maybe you're familiar with the answer that he supposedly gave. He said, I would still plant my apple tree. What's Luther's point? Our job is not to panic about the past, to fret about the present, or to worry about the future. Our job as the people of God is to find ourselves in the will of God to his great glory. Isn't that what Jesus, the true and better shepherd, prophet, priest, and king told us? Seek first his kingdom. Why? He is the one David is speaking of. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. It's not more complicated than that. Leave your future with Christ. Leave your past with Christ. Leave your present with Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would comfort.